You know you need one. You know you need one. Have you seen your hair? Oh, my gosh. Actually, if more people had one of these, they'd be here today. This is a nor'easter. I've had it for about 30-some-odd years now, and uh, you can get one if you go on Amazon. Just look up nor'easter, but anyway, I haven't worn that for a long time. It's kind of fun. Well, th good morning, and thanks for being here. Um, I have had so much fun recently uh, asking you guys to do crowd participation when I've been up here on the stage, and so I thought I'd do it again. Is that okay? No, I promise nobody has to stand up this time. I promise. If you have something to write on and write with, you're in good shape. If you don't, maybe you can grab your smartphone and pop it open to the notes page or even get yourself to a place where you could send yourself a text or an email. But I want you to record your gut response to the following scenario. If you died tomorrow and you were standing at the pearly gate and God himself opened up the gate and asked you, why should I let you in, what would your response be? Now, I'm not making a theological statement about that there's this literal pearly gate and that God is literally going to stick his head out someday when you leave this earth. I'm just kind of using some imagery to frame the question. But if you, if you died tomorrow and if God asked you or, or if anyone asked you tomorrow, why should God let you into heaven? What would your gut response be? So take a moment and, and just write that down. Got that? Thanks for playing. Thanks for playing. All right, so we've been in this House of Lies series. This is our ninth week in the House of Lies series. And so I want to catch you up briefly on what the premise for this series has been, which really was established over the first three weeks of the series. And if you missed one or more of the first three weeks, I would strongly encourage you to go back and catch up on that. And you can do that on our website. There's audio and there's video out there. The underlying premise to the series has been this reality that every person in the room, and in fact, every person that has ever lived, they want to experience a deep, satisfying life. Like, that's in our DNA. And what we have said is that culture has increasingly leaned away from this framework that encourages us, I'm sorry, it's leaned towards this framework that encourages us to determine how we go about doing that. Culture has moved away from a framework based on some overarching truth about for all people towards this individual perception about what truth is for them, for me. In other words, culture has said absolute truth is a myth. And so in week one of the series, we debunked the lie that absolute truth is a myth. We said that there was such a thing as absolute truth, and if we could live out of that truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, then we could find this deeply satisfying life that we all want. That if we could build the foundation and the structures of what hold our life together around absolute truth, then we would experience the kind of life that seems to be written into our very DNA. And then we also said that no single person has a lock on all of the truth. Most of us have stories in which we thought we were living out of something that we believed to be true, only to find out later that what we believe to be true 
was in fact a lie, or maybe to be generous was simply just a portion of the truth, and we came to find out that life was diminished in some way around that, or, or that maybe even life was damaged significant, significantly, where to some degree the structures and the foundation of what was holding life together for us, it felt like it was crashing down. Or maybe in some cases, it actually, life came crashing down. And we've played off this house of cards analogy over this series, you know, whereby the structure and the foundation of the house, if it's built on flimsy cards, it would be unstable, eventually it'd come crashing down. And the connection, of course, for us has been that if, if we build the foundation and the structures of our life on flimsy truths that we believe ultimately to find out that they were lies, that the very foundation, the very structure of our lives will eventually come crashing down, much like we see with the house that's built of cards. I know for a fact that's been true in my life, and I know a lot of you, and I've seen your lives, and I know that that's been true for a lot of you as well. And so what we've pinned our hope on is this reality that there's a God that created us, that loves us so much that he has given us truth that he's actually given us absolute truth about how to live this life, and it forms the whole truth that would not only expose the lies in our lives, but that would help us to create this solid foundation with structures for life that would withstand even the most intense pressures that would lead to the life that we long for. And we talked about how God has primarily given us that truth in his teaching through the Bible. And we said that if we could base our lives around every single thing that he says, then we can be confident that we would be living a life that's based on truth and not on lies. It says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says this. He says, you are my true disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In his teachings, God, he's laid out in every fundamental area of life. He said, this is the path of truth. He said, this is the path of lies. And it says in Psalm chapter 119, verse 29, the psalmist, he says, he says to God, keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of, of knowing your instructions. So God has said, if you really want this vibrant life, then study my word. Then listen to what I have to say, and I'll show you the truth, and you can live out of that kind of life, free from the debilitating effects that are caused by living out of a belief system that's polluted with lies, at least as it relates to your part in it. Now, I recognize we're surrounded by a bunch of people that live out of a belief system that's polluted with lies, and we receive some shrapnel from that. But at least as it relates to our lives, if we could live in the truth, if we can study his word and we can know it's true, then, then we, could, we could allow ourselves to be free of some of that damage that we would otherwise inflict on ourselves. And then we said in week three, there is this key lie that every person has bought into at one time or another. Every person that has ever lived has bought into this lie at some point that God's holding out of, on us, that God is holding out on us. The lie is, if I really want to have the best life, if I really want to have the fullest life, then I'm going to have to ignore some of what he says and do some of the things that I want to do because he's holding out on me in some way. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were deceived by Satan in believing that lie. And, and uh, honestly, it has happened to all of us in one fashion or another. And so we turn to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says very profoundly, 
the thief, that's Satan, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. And what I've learned in my life and in the lives of others around me that I've watched is that when we embrace what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, when we believe to the core that he really did come to give life to the fullest, when we own that, then we'll follow Jesus anywhere. When we own that, then we'll follow Jesus in anything that he says. When we come to that point of believing that if Jesus says this is truth, then we'll engage it and we'll realize that it is the path to the fullest life. And so now over the course of many weeks, we've been applying that truth to just fundamental areas of life in which the culture that we live in has been and, and will continue to feed us lies that to some measure have either derailed us or will derail us for this full life that Jesus promises. We've talked about profound and provocative things. Things that we don't want to talk about, let alone in church. We've talked about several aspects of sexuality. We've talked about money and who wants to talk about money. And last week, we talked about feelings. And I know a bunch of guys clenched up really tight when Rick used the word feelings. But we talked last week about how we can't trust our feelings. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about this cultural lie that says that it's our performance that determines our self-worth. That our performance, that the things that we do, that the ways that we do them, will drive our sense of worth. And I, I got to confess to you, for a long time, I allowed my performance to be the table setter for how I felt about myself, as to whether I felt like I had any value or any worth. And I can't pinpoint exactly in my life why that came to be, but the truth was that as I grew up, and then well into my adult life, I just got programmed to think that it was my performance and what others thought about my performance that drove my sense of worth. And the problem for me was that as I trusted as truth what I felt, ah, that goes back to last week, when I trusted as truth what I felt, or I trusted as truth what I felt about what others felt about how I performed, it put me on this roller coaster ride in terms of what I believed to be true about my worth at any point in time. And what I came to feel like is that there wasn't any truth at all about my worth, or at least none that I could really count on. Well, except for one thing. One thing I came to believe was true is that it seemed like it took ten, me to do 10 things that made me feel good about myself to counteract one thing that made me feel bad about myself. Like I came to understand that was pretty true and it didn't seem like I was, I was able to sustain that kind of ratio in my life because too often I felt like I was just losing the battle of feeling good about my worth, of feeling good about myself. I'll give you one example of that. I have a ton of examples as it's played out in my life. Just before I came on staff here at FDC, I worked for a secular company, the same one for 17 years. And for the couple of years leading up to my leaving there, um, the company was growing like crazy. It was gro we, were, we were all over Mad Money. Wall Street loved us. It was a really cool time for the company. And, and during my last couple of years there, uh, I was managing a piece of existing business for the company. And I was also given a role, as many people were, um, to uh, do due diligence and to do acquisition work and integration of these companies that we were buying that was fueling our growth. And we were going crazy. And there came this time, because of the acquisition work that I was doing, and because of my own business unit running well, there came this time, this moment, 
where the company, the senior executives on the company, gave me this like public attaboy, this public acknowledgement, and I felt really good about myself. I mean, I, my performance, was, my worth was driven by my performance, and they said, your performance has been really good, and I felt great about myself. I had joy and happiness, and I just, I felt good, even a, a, a hopefully a healthy sense of pride. And it was just like within two weeks of that, I had to prepare this massive proposal for this same team, the senior executives in the company. And I put as much effort into preparing that proposal as I had put into everything else that I had done, running my own business unit, doing due diligence on companies we were buying, doing integration work, the very same effort I put into that proposal, but the results of my performance weren't so well received, and, and I knew that. And because I tied my sense of worth to my performance, it created in me the sense that I had no worth at all. It sucked the life out of me because my worth was tied to what people thought about my performance. And I just projected on myself, if they didn't see value in my proposal, then they didn't see value in me. And I owned that as truth, and it ate me alive. So what was true about my worth? Did I have worth, or did I not have worth? One minute I hung the moon, one minute I'm getting mooned. Like, what was true? What was true? And I, because I was buying into the lie that says my performance drives my worth, these performance swings, they gave me this, these elevated senses of worth and value. And then these totally def deflated senses of worth and value. And I, and I have experienced that so many times in my life, that my emotions, they constantly varied from joy and happiness because I felt good about myself, to despondency and worry and anxiety because I didn't think I was worth a flip. And it wasn't just work that drove that. It was, it was every aspect of my life. Over the decades of my life, it was my performance in my marriage. I've been divorced now for 15 years. It was my performance in my marriage that drove my sense of worth. My parental relationship, either with my kids or with my own parents, that drove my sense of worth my academic studies and how I performed at school and felt like I was performing, even in my hobbies and my recreation, those drove my sense of value and worth in me all the time. And it was like I was trying to grasp smoke in the wind. And, and maybe some of you can relate to that. The truth is for me, I know this now, and the truth is for you, our performance as parents, as spouses, in our jobs, in our schoolwork, in our hobbies and extra extracurricular activities, they can and they will change. They just do. Most of you probably know, you probably experienced many times in your life that you simply can't bring your A game every single time. And the truth is we can't please all of the people all of the time. But if you allow your performance to drive what you believe is true about your sense of value and your sense of worth, that sense of worth that takes this roller coaster ride along with your performance, and it's a terrible place to be. If you've lived in that, it's a terrible place to be because we can never know what's really true about ourselves. And we wanna know what's true about ourselves. And so we try to create it. And most of us, we stay on this hamster wheel that's the performance lie. And we just strive to lock in the truth about who we are. We just keep grasping for smoke in the wind because we want to know what's true. Can any of you relate to that? 
Some of you in here, you're performance, a performer. Some of you are perfectionists. And you drive yourselves crazy, and you drive the people around you crazy by your never-ending pursuit of perfection in your performance because it's what drives what you feel about yourself, about your sense of worth. Whether you cognitively know it or not, that's what's happening. And the lie of the world that you are bought into is if you're just a little bit better, if you're just a little bit better, you will arrive, you will lock in the truth, you will have that sense of worth that you've been looking for. But I'm sorry to break it to you this way, you're incapable of achieving enough perfection to lock it in. You're just incapable of locking it in. But you keep striving because you have this constant lack of peace. Because you can't consistently meet those standards that you set for yourself. And this lack of peace, it drives your attitudes and your behaviors. And you look like you're impatient. And you look like you're defensive. And you look like you're rigid and prideful. And you demand to be in control because failure is a threat to your self-worth if you put it in the hands of someone else. And it's just not acceptable. Somewhere in your life, someone in your life, they made you feel like if you couldn't do it perfectly, that you were worthless. And you, you're insufferable now in this. Just ask the people around you. And it's, a, it's such a tough place to be. There is nothing wrong with doing things well to the very best of our ability. We should. That's biblical. We should do that. But the trap is when the motive, when the motivation for that is, that is to feel good about yourself, if you can track your sense of self-worth and value to how you think you're performing, then you have bought the lie. You have bought the lie. Some of you aren't perfectionists, but in order to feel worth, your performance is rather motivated by gaining approval from other people. The world we live in, it's filled with people who demand that we please them in exchange for their approval and their acceptance. And that so often leads so many of us to this false belief that we have to perform in a way that will be approved by them because their approval is the basis on which we ascribe self-worth. Self -worth. Are there any people pleasers in the room? There's a ton of people pleasers in the house. I know it. We live according to this aspect of the performance lie, and it drives us to conform our attitudes, our behaviors to the expectations of other people. And as we seek to find value and worth in who we are, and here's the problem for the people pleaser. You know what the problem is. People are fickle. People, people change their expectations of us like the weather in Houston changes, right? You want to be here Tuesday. It's probably going to be a great day here Tuesday. Today, you may very well gain the approval of someone that you have placed on the worth barometer in your life, and you'll feel really good about yourself today. And then tomorrow, you won't meet their expectations, and your sense of self-worth and value will take a major hit. We people-pleasers, we've given power, power to determine our own worth to some other imperfect people as we strive to please them in our performance. Have you ever experienced that with a parent? or with a spouse, or with a teacher, or a coach, or even a friend. You're in for a roller coaster ride if you pin your worth on how they think you're performing. Here's another issue for us people pleasers. It gets worse. Some of the people that you're trying to gain approval from, they'll have expectations of you that include behaviors that aren't healthy, that aren't healthy physically, that aren't healthy relationally, that aren't healthy emotionally or financially 
or spiritually. You buy into the performance lie around people-pleasing to drive your sense of self-worth, and you put yourself at serious risk of negative fallout in that. Maybe even, frankly, some serious sin. It's like, it would be like a, this teenage girl, this high school girl, who finally has gained the attention of the football guy. She's finally gained his attention. And as she's done that, her sense of value and worth is soaring. It is soaring. And then he asks her to act out with him sexually because guys are jerks. And, and, and now she is left with this terrible decision that she has to make. I mean, does she give in to what will please him in order to affirm her sense of self-worth? Or does she risk suffering rejection and this serious hit to her value and her sense of worth if she says no? And, and that even ties into the sexuality lie. There is this web of lies that are so connected. We just can't please people all the time. And so our sense of worth is all over the place. And when it's all over the place, we stay on the hamster wheel, trying to lock in that sense of value through our performance. But we can't. We can't. And then there's one more bucket of people I want to talk about that are impacted by this performance lie. It's more like they're a casualty of the performance lie. They're kind of on the opposite side of the performance striver. They're the antithesis, antithesis of the person who's constantly striving to meet their own standards or to meet somebody else's standards. They have failed or they have felt like they have failed so many times that just the idea of meeting standards to feel worth, of performing to feel worth, it sends them into this tailspin of despair. Sadly, in this room, it's full of people that view themselves that way, where they just have gotten to a place where they rarely expect to achieve anything or to feel good about themselves. And because they've tied their sense of value to how they've performed, you felt so beaten down so many times that you just, you don't think you have value, you think you're worthless, and because of the past, past failures, you're so quick to interpret that any potential to perform that may present itself with the opportunity to fail, it just is this affirmation in your mind, I'm worthless, I can't do it. And so fearing failure, you, you just don't. You just don't do it. And, and you're characterized by low motivation and despondency and depression, and, and you even stop trying. And we... We performance strivers, we peg them as lazy because, but they simply, they can't bear to take another hit to their self-worth. I mean, honestly, who wants to do that? And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's this child that try as he might over time to meet his parents' great expectation, finally says, forget it. If I'm going to feel worthless, if I can never meet your expectations with all of this effort that I'm expending, then I'll just not do the work anymore. I mean, why should I? I'm still going to feel worthless anyway. And we say, what's the matter with you? You just have to work harder. And they say, it doesn't matter how hard I work because I can't do it. And so they just stop trying. Or it's a spouse that feels so devalued by their marriage partner, no matter how hard that they have tried, that says, I can't feel any worse about myself anymore. I just, I can't feel any worse about myself anymore. And so I just quit trying. For these people, this performance lie, it has eaten them alive. 
And so they've jumped off the hamster wheel. I mean, they're not on the hamster wheel anymore, but they haven't resolved the issue of self-worth. Not at all. Thinking you have no value is no resolution. And so as I was preparing for this message, I was doing some research in a book, and the question that I posed to you right at the beginning was presented in it. It said, if God asked you why he should let you into heaven, how would you respond? And it didn't have God sticking his head out of a pearly gate. That was just me ad-libbing, right? But the question, when I read it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks as I'm thinking about performance and I'm thinking about worth. And I thought it might be fun to survey some people around that question. And so I began to just ask people that question. I'm just, I'm randomly, I'm running into people. I'm like, hey, man, if you died tomorrow and you were at the pearly gate and God himself stuck his head out of the pearly gate and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Gut response. And, and I'm getting these responses. And as I'm getting the responses, I decide I need to expand the distribution of the question. And so I, I asked before I came here today in my preparation, I asked a whole bunch of additional people. And it was amazing how many people that responded attached this I statement to it. Well, I did this. Or I tried to do that. And so they projected what drove their feeling of value on whether they had enough worth whether they did enough to generate enough worth to enter into heaven. They projected that on God. It very much had a performance connection attached to it. And then there were a lot of responses where people just said he shouldn't or he wouldn't because of the things that I've done poorly, because of the things that I've messed up. There was this other performance connection. And even in those types of responses, those two responses, even when one of those respondents included, well, and because, God, you said that, if I just believed in Jesus, that you would, which is true. Frankly, there is nothing more and there is nothing less to the response to God as to why I should let you into heaven is, well, it's because of what Jesus did. And you said that if I believed in him, you would. But ev those two respondents, even when they connected that truth, there was still this performance attachment to it. The reality was there was this very high number of responses where there was a performance factor. And a large majority of these people, they're Christ followers. And so I wonder how you responded to that today. And whether or not in your response, whether you actually wrote it down or whether you just did this mental check in your head, whether there was this performance connection to it. The responses, they just, they took me a little bit by surprise at the pervasiveness of the lie that we have been fed by culture, that performance drives worth. And it's become so ingrained in us that we project that on God's view of our worth. And it's a terrible place to be. It's a toxic place to be, feeling like we have to constantly earn our worth. Or simply settling into this place where you just don't think you have any and you just quit trying, especially as it relates to God. It's a tragic place. But God, he has an answer to this lie that performance drives worth. You found a scripture card on your seat when you came in, or if you didn't, you're sitting on it probably. So grab that, grab that scripture card. This, this is the truth right here. This is the definitive answer to our question of not only whether we have worth, but whether we have to perform to attain it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Since we have been made right with God 
uh, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. This passage says that we have been made right, made right in God's sight. It means that we're holy. It means that we're blameless and we're accepted, we're flawless, and we're worthy to be in the very presence of the God of all of creation. And it says we are in a state of peace with him. The Greek word for peace here, it doesn't just mean that there's a lack of conflict. It means that we're in harmony with God, that when we're in this place of safety relative to him. It is a lasting peace, assuring us that there is nothing left to do to prove that we should remain so in his presence. And the most incredible, most liberating thing about it is that the text goes on to say, it is because of what Jesus Christ has done. It is not anything that you have done, it is not anything that I have done or not done, but rather simply what he has done on the cross. If you want to know the definitive answer as to what ascribes value to you, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While our performance stunk, while we weren't performing at all, God exchanged the, his, his, the very life of his son, which has infinite value for ours, for mine, and for yours. And I think, at least as it relates to me, he could have gotten away with a pig for my life. Maybe a chicken for your life, I'm not sure. <clears throat> oh, but there I go. There I go, attaching what I've done in my performance to whether or not I have worth or value. He saw such value in my life, and he has seen such value in your life that it was worth the life of his son. And did you know that the value of something is set by the purchaser? Did you know that? That the value of anything <clears throat> is determined that by the person that is willing to buy it and what they're willing to pay. That's what this determines value. And God determined that it would be the life of his son that would be an equal exchange for your life. For some of you in here today, you have never claimed the infinite value and worth that is rightly ascribed to you because you have not yet exchanged your life for Jesus. You've just simply not do that. And there is nothing that you have to do except simply to believe that he died for you in your lousy performance that will always remain lousy in the sight of the perfect God. There is nothing more that you have to do than simply ask him to lead your life, to lead you into that truth, to say, I believe that's what you did for me. And Lord and Jesus, would you simply just lead me into a life that is lived in truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which is your truth. And then for many of you here today, at one point in your life, you've received that infinite value tag from God when you exchanged your life for Jesus. But too many of us have been have bought into the performance lie. Too many of us have been bought into performance lie. And we've tried to be the value setter again and again and again. And we keep falling back to that. We need to consume this absolute truth about the source of our worth, <clears throat> that it's not about our performance, but it's in what Jesus has already done that determines that. 
It is already done. And then we're called, when we can do that, then we're called to simply live out our life, to perform in our life. Yes, we are called to perform, but we're, and, and to the very best of our ability, but, but not out of motivation to determine worth and value, simply out of a response for this great love that he has for us. That's the motivation. Scripture says, do everything that you do as if you're doing it for the Lord, because when we remember that, when we remember the exchange that he's made for our life and the worth that he has ascribed for our life, we can go about our work and our performance, and we can do the very best that we can and we should, and we just know that we've done it simply out of our love for him in response. Man, I cannot tell you how freeing that is when we do that. And it is my prayer that you would take this card if you struggle with this issue and you will put it on your dashboard or put it on your desk or put it somewhere where you would just consume this truth and where you would get to a place maybe for the very first time in your life or maybe for the thousandth time in your life that you can exchange this hamster wheel never-ending performance drive to generate worth for what God already says is true about you. I'm going to pray, as I'm praying, the band is going to come up. We're going we're to do a song before we do announcements. And it's a new song for us, but if you listen to Christian radio at all, you'll recognize it because it's getting a ton of play. And you can respond to the song any way you want. You can stand and you can join in. You can sit and reflect on the words. But um, let, me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, oh man, we hate lies and we hate deception. And I know that there isn't a person in here that doesn't, that doesn't want to live in the truth. Now, they may not like the truth, but there isn't anybody that doesn't want to live in the truth. And I thank you, Father, for the way that you have been working in us over the course of these last nine weeks to help us see where truth lies, that it lies only in you. And I thank you, Father, for the work that you've done over all these weeks in beginning to help us transform our lives into a place of alignment with what truth is, and as you've done that, that you begin to release us from the shackles and the bondage of living in lies and living in partial truths. And it is my great prayer today, Lord, this morning and in the days to come that all of us would grasp this truth, this profound truth that you are the value setter for us, that it is not our performance that drives our worth, that it is you that determines our worth. And that out of that, as we lean into that and we consume that to the very core of who we are, that it would make a difference in the way we feel about life. Pray this with great hope and expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.